Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Jimbo the Consensualist, as he is known on Twitter. If you're not following this uber pleb, you should be. He's written a book, Orange Coin Good. And I got to tell you, it's a very good book. I've read it through twice. It's a really well-written, easy-to-read book, something you'll be able to share with friends, family, or noobs, or something that is so easily digestible that just to give it a quick read yourself even if you've been down a rabbit hole a few years it's just a really good refresher and you'll get a real good feel for Jimbo in this interview I've been very impressed with uh, his knowledge and the way he uh, is thinking about Bitcoin so I hope you enjoy the episode make sure you are following him before we do get into the episode please make sure you are uh, supporting the show sponsors and stacking with these guys there are several companies out there that you can choose from the ones that uh, help me out on the show are swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten they are based in the US you can sign up using that code forward slash bitten will get you a free $10 to start your stacking journey or add to your stacking journey if you're using other services as well across Europe we have similar services relay R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash Bitten. They are always running little promos, so make sure you use that forward slash Bitten to go check out the landing page and what is in it for you. There'll be some kind of discount and you can start stacking out of your euros and pounds and into Bitcoin and sats. Far better money. You can do the same with Bitcoin Reserve dot com forward slash ref forward slash bitten go and check them out you can use them to stack daily or you can use them for bigger amounts if you want to put on fifty thousand pounds or euros or more they've got a white glove service that's their concierge service nick has been on the show ceo and so has andrew who's based out of mexico and working for them doing great work over there and of course you have coincorner.com Check them out, an exchange based in the Isle of Man. They're doing great things with Lightning. You as a pleb can get on the exchange and set up your auto buys. They have your very best interest at heart, not your keys, not your coins. Make sure you take all of these coins that you have managed to stack off these apps, off these exchanges, get them onto a hardware wallet. Anybody in the space will tell you to do that. You can use shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten to get yourself 5% discount on the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition. Now, do you want to get to the conference? Hit the link in the show notes for all of these companies. And if you hit the link in the show notes for the conference, you'll get 10% off all of your tickets. Make sure you're able to travel. It's going to be huge. April 6th to April 9th. It's coming around the corner now. Miami Beach in Florida. All four days are going to be packed. There's big announcements of more speakers. Uh, we know Bukele is going to be there and Sailor, but now there's going to be Cynthia Lummis and there's also going to be Jordan Peterson, as well as um, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Mallers, and many more. The conference caps off with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper Logic Steve Aoki. 
CL, Ron the Jewel, San Holy, Dead Mount 5. Here's Jimbo. All right, we're here with uh, with Jimbo, the consensualist. Good to see you, man. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. All right, Lauren, what you got? I think I got two questions, but mm-hmm. some might come to me. Mm-hmm. So my first question is, why did you write Orange Coin Good? That is a great question. Um, it started off as uh, effectively a newsletter I was trying to explain to some of my colleagues, some ideas that I had. And um, in that process, I realized there was a lot of information they didn't have. So it just became longer and longer until it became a book. Mm -hmm. So my goal was to try to explain Bitcoin in a way that would appeal to lots of different people and not just maybe a particular audience. Okay. And um, thinking about this question, Mm -hmm. I don't know how to explain it. Um, Well, go on, try. Was it hard explaining Bitcoin to other people? Um, Yeah, it was. So in writing the book, um, I learned a lot. And I think you'll find that in writing, it helps clear clear, um, ideas that you have. Um, But for me, Bitcoin is really three different things. It's a network of computers. It's a money. But then there's also this social layer. And I found that explaining that to people, I thought, um, was kind of important understand what he means by uh like a, a social layer no not so, really so what's the social layer yeah that's fine so obviously you know bitcoin runs on computers if you have a wallet you can run it on a phone or something and you have these bitcoin nodes and those are computers and anybody can spin up as many computers as they want you can go buy computers and just run bitcoin as many times so it isn't the fact that everybody runs nodes that's really powerful. And the data for Bitcoin is all open. It's all open source, public, public ledger, public data. You can download it. Everybody has a copy who runs a node. So you can copy the data many times. The fact that the data is copied doesn't matter. So it's not the nodes. It's not even the money, the, the data. What matters is the people. So um, you can't clone the people. You can't just copy the people. It's the people that give the project value. And so that's why I say Bitcoin is more than just data and it's more than just computers because without the people, it wouldn't exist. It's the people that give it value. Okay. You're one of those people. Yay. Did you realize that? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are. You've done like uh, 240 of these shows. People that listen to it, they hear you. They they like your questions. They, They especially like the answers from the guests. You're one of those people adding value to the bitcoin network oh yeah that makes sense now feel weird a bit yeah (laughs) since i didn't realize it (laughs) it's the beauty of bitcoin Mm. i'm trying to think of that question now well we just got pretty deep so yeah (laughs) any of your surface questions probably (laughs) well i'm gonna say go go on go ahead good question Mm -hmm. what is your favorite bitcoin book that you have read so far mm, my favorite bitcoin book that i've read mm-hmm. um so i haven't read that many bitcoin books uh, a lot of the material that i got from my own book i got from reading you know papers that were out in the world or books that weren't about bitcoin um but there was a book called digital gold that kind of gives the story of some early bitcoiners that i think would be 
the best Bitcoin book that I've read. If you're if you're going to ask for books about money in general, there's a really good book called The Richest Man in Babylon, and that book is uh, it can be condensed into a few few sentences, but it basically means save 10% of what you earn and pay yourself with that, and that's a really important lesson. Um, and now that we have good money in the form of Bitcoin, it is actually possible to save. So I would I would say the richest man the richest man in Babylon would be one of the most important books that I've read on the topic of money in general. Uh, Bitcoin specifically, I'd probably say digital gold. The the author doesn't come to mind uh, my head, but that was a good book. Richest man in Babylon is just there, and if you want to go and pick that up and and read that before you go to bed. I'm reading other things right now and i have a lot of well not really because i nearly read all of them but i have some books on the shelves waiting for me so, all right all right don't worry so it's there for when you it's there for when you need it and a big shout out that that's the second time that book's been shielded on this podcast glenn hoddle if you're if you're listening he was the first uh not the glenn hoddle but glenn hoddle he knows who he is all right all right any more questions no okay yeah that's it all right do you want to say good night to to jimbo see you bye bye nice to meet you nice to meet you too all right man well thanks for coming on um love love your book this is and i know you've got more than one so let's let first thing first things first let's let the listeners know uh you know who we're talking to who you are and um uh, about your your writing like the, the the book series that you've put out there okay yeah well thanks uh thanks for giving me the chance to introduce myself uh, i go by jimbo the consensualist on uh pretty much everywhere and the book that you're talking about is orange coin good it's uh the first book that i've self-published i had published a few books um before that in my uh in my fiat life that were nature this is my first book written for a general audience and um yeah i I initially thought it was going to just be one book but when i sketched out everything that i felt like i wanted to say on the subject it was going to be 600 pages and nobody wants to read a 600 page book so i broke it into a series of um, roughly 150 pages that i felt like were self-contained and that's what orange coin good is it's the first of four books um, on Bitcoin. And it, it tries to answer the question, like, how can this purely digital money that's not backed by anything have any value? That was kind of the key question I wanted to answer. Um, and so that's what that book is about. Yeah, and I love it. And it's, it's a brilliant. So for, for those people that are new to the show or new to Bitcoin, this is an absolute go to because you the, the way that you write this and kind of lay it out and help people understand what it is, uh, we, we can go through it chapter by chapter no problem and do kind of like a a novice beginner uh episode or like a refresher course for those that are halfway down the rabbit hole and lauren has just returned with a beer this is why you got to have kids bitcoiners thank you very much look at that (laughs) cheers jimbo (laughs) this is do do you have kids yourself do yeah yeah two yes i have two um I have two kids, uh, one's middle school age and one's uh, in high school. Oh, good for you, man. Well, um, did these, how long, it, all right, yeah, let's, let's do the whole, re- I don't know where to take this. All right, you, you, you've already talked about your fiat life very briefly. So what was that? What, was, what were you doing in, what was uh, Fiat Jimbo up to? 
Sure, that's a that's a that's a fair question. Um, so um, by trade, so I, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, I mean, when I was in kindergarten, I wanted to be an astronaut. Then I went to uh, I was fortunate enough to go to space camp um, when I was in fifth grade, and that cured me of that. And so I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> why, um, but why? Why did it cure you of wanting to be an astronaut? What went down? Um, uh, nothing, nothing bad. It was just like, I had had enough. Like I just got, got an, enough, um, enough space, I guess, right. uh, spending a whole week out there at space camp. Um, uh, that took place in Florida in, uh, in August, which was pretty oppressively hot outside and, uh, <laughs> in the part of the country where it is, there's like swamps around. So it just always smelled bad outside. And I was like, all right, well, I've had enough. I've had yeah. enough of this. So I didn't know what I was going to do with my life uh, for a couple of years there. But then in seventh grade, I discovered uh, the TI-83 calculator and I started with my friends making games. And that was when I knew that I was going to be a programmer. And so um, I'm a professional software engineer. I've been writing programs since middle school, but professionally, probably closer to almost two decades. Um, So yeah, software engineer is kind of like my, my bread and butter. And frankly, that pays better than writing words for people like writing words for computers, you know, programs for computers. Um, it seems like that's the more profitable thing I can do rather than writing books. I don't mind writing books. And I thought maybe that was going to be a way to, to have an alternative career, but software seems to be more profitable. Is that where you first came across Bitcoin then as a software engineer that, and that's how you came to look into the peek into the rabbit hole? Yeah, so I'm embarrassed to say that um, I learned about Bitcoin. Uh, it was definitely at latest in 2011. Somebody recommended it to me and said, "Hey, there's this white paper. This uh, this author figured out how to solve the double spend problem." And at that time in my life, um, I just had a really low opinion of academia. So anything that was like white papery sounded to me academic, and therefore I just had I had little patience for it in my in my hubris. So I kind of I ignored Bitcoin in 2011. Um, it wasn't until later 2012, 2013, I started paying more attention to it, you know, got myself a Mt. Gox account, lost money on Mt. Gox when it imploded like everybody else. Um, still hope someday to get my $10 back. Uh, I get, I get, I get the bankruptcy notices every once in a while in Japanese and, you know, look forward to the day that I'm made whole again. They still come through. You're kidding. I still get emails, yeah, every once in a while asking me to sign up for this or that or like update my password on some kind of website, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, so they're, they're still working on it. I think what they're, I think because Bitcoin has appreciated so much, even though Mt. Gox lost a lot of its Bitcoin, the Bitcoin that they maintained that they didn't lose has appreciated in fiat terms to the point where they could actually, I believe, make everyone whole in fiat terms from the time that they lost access to their accounts. So anyway, I might get my 10 bucks. What a mess. What did that, that'd be, what a 10 bucks to track, huh? Because I know what you do straight away with that 10 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I I like to think that I'm just making it a little bit harder on uh, whoever has to go manage that account, you know, that they have to track my insignificant amount of losses against uh against the bankruptcy proceedings but anyway after after mount gox collapsed um i uh i didn't know if what i was watching was bitcoin's slow demise and it wasn't until uh embarrassingly 2017 that i i realized um like when bitcoin hit new all-time highs in the beginning of 2017 like around march when it passed the old blow-off top from 2013 2014 that was when i realized that it would never die i, I just had instant conviction 
um, before I even understood how it worked. And that was when I fell in the rabbit hole was kind of like spring, summer of 2017. And I'm just, you know, from reading your book and from listening to you now talking about, uh, you know, being a software engineer, I, I get the field, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the open source software, the open source nature of Bitcoin is what really kind of um, enamored you to it. Sure. If it was closed source, then it wouldn't, it would have, it would be completely uninteresting. Um, so the fact that it was open source was useful, but like I said, I was completely, ana- I was completely convinced that it would not die, that it would not be killed uh, even before the 2017, like rest of the, the run up and the blow off top. Um, yeah. I, so in my, in my software engineering life, um, my, my focus tends to be on front end, uh, engineering type things. And in particular for the last eight years or so, um, I've been doing custom data visualizations, which I think is what caught your attention. And uh, I don't know if we're ta- we'll talk about that later. Um, but I've also studied, um, you know, databases and whatnot. So <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really a, a, a sad twist of fate that I didn't look at Bitcoin earlier because uh, I had all the relevant background knowledge and I had, I, I mean, I had even already read Creature from Jekyll Island. I had already like, you know, listened to Ron Paul and all, I, had, I had all the necessary background. Um, but, you know, just in my own, my own hubris, I just ignored it for a while and it took me until 2017. So the fact that it's open source is certainly an important factor. Um, but yeah, so the, the epiphany that really helped me out was if you have a network of peers, if you have a, a peer group and there's a dispute, the way that you resolve that dispute in the legacy world, ultimately, if people can't agree, like if they can't, if they just can't come to an agreement, either the, either the group will fall apart or force, like ultimately violence is what brings things back together. Like, but you have to look outside the peers, like a group of peers amongst themselves when the stakes are high is not able to come to a, a resolution. I mean, I, I mean, obviously lots of, lots of things can be resolved internally, but if you can't, then the thing either falls apart or it devolves to violence. But with Bitcoin for the first time, we have, we have an external objective uh, criteria that can be looked at. Like the work that was done to mine the blocks is the objective criterion that everybody can agree to. Like you either agree that we're going to use proof of work to determine the ordering of the transactions or not. And Satoshi's genius was creating the difficulty readjustment so that work has to always be done in order to create that, that ordering. So I don't know. I I don't know what to tell you. Like it it took me a long time to grok that, but for the first time we have an alternative to violence for, um, for resolving otherwise unresolvable disputes amongst people. And that I think is tremendously important. You're not the first person I've heard say this. In fact, Laser Hoddle was on the beginning of the year and he had a 15 to 18 year career in in software development and and whatever else. And I remember him saying the first, you know, when he first looked at Bitcoin, he's like, this is the most ridiculously retarded database of inefficient database I've ever seen in my life and just ignored it like so many other people did uh, in that field. So you're certainly not alone. Um, and I come from the finance world where, you know, I was, I was broken foreign, ex- foreign exchange when, when this thing landed. And we all looked at it very early and just dismissed it because 
God damn, we were just so we had our fiat glasses on, you know, we were just uh, all uh, wrapped up in in the hubris of of what we were doing in our careers and you know the self importance. And you've got to break all that down before you can even really come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, you bring up a good point also about the, uh, the inefficiency and um, you know, Bitcoin certainly is inefficient in terms of um, in terms of consensus algorithms. But like I said, the alternative to a group of peers um, coming to an agreement, like if, 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 if the stakes don't matter, then, you know, you can, it's easy to agree like, oh, okay, whatever I'll, you know, should we have tacos or pizza? And if you don't care, then, you know, just flip a coin and it's fine. But if the stakes are high, then flipping a coin, isn't going to, isn't going to cut it. Like, you know, you, you want to have your way, but yeah. So if you look at Bitcoin and you think it's a database, then yes, it, it's an incredibly inefficient database. Um, and people talk about the cost, like, oh, it uses so much electricity. And yes, it does use a lot of electricity, but you have to also look at the value. One, one time I, I have, I've had a number of uh, discussions about Bitcoin with various people. And I remember one time they were complaining about the energy and I said, well, whose energy is it, right? Who gets to decide how that energy is used? And that kind of put a silence to it. It's like somebody, somebody is deciding to put that energy to use to mine Bitcoin. What were their other opportunities? Why did they choose to send it to Bitcoin mining and not to something else? But whose energy is it? And once I asked whose energy is it, I just got radio silence because it's like, yeah, somebody made that decision and it was their decision to make. Um, but I, people talk about, you know, people get hung up on like, oh, the Bitcoins use, uses as much electricity as this country or that country. But there's no reason why it can't use many times more electricity than every other use. So hypothetically, imagine that somebody sends a spaceship out to orbit near the sun and harvest like solar radiation at, at near range. And it uses so much energy, but it's producing proof, proof of work. It could be that that hypothetical spaceship uses way more energy than all the rest of earth combined. Does that, is that somehow bad? Like, is it wrong now? Like, is somebody else worse off because that energy is not for them? Like, well, if nobody was using that energy, then, you know, you're not really depriving anybody. So I think we get hung up, unfortunately, in this scarcity mindset of well, there's only so much energy to go around. And if this percent is being used on Bitcoin, how much worse off is everybody else because of this waste? And it's like, first of all, it's not waste. <laughs> it's, it's creating the most valuable consensus that humanity has ever known. And second of all, it's like, there's so much energy out there in the universe. We use such a very tiny percentage of it. There's no reason to be worried about how much Bitcoin uses. Like, let's just have more energy for everybody. Like, let's increase the total amount that humanity has access to, and, and then it won't matter. I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling. Sorry about that. No, it's a great, it's a great point. I love it. Whose energy is it? That, that, that's, that's awesome, right? Because you could apply that to so many different things. Like, you know, right, if you're using energy to toast a piece a piece of bread you know how dare you to like somebody on the keto diet right <laughs> what what a waste of energy what are you doing or if you're using energy to uh you know um cook yourself a, a beef wellington in the oven I mean, how dare you? you you know to a vegetarian it, right. it, of course if, if it's your energy and you're deciding how to use it or when to use it or for what reason who's to question that yeah, I think 
Christmas lights are a great example. You know, people say, mm -hmm. oh, Bitcoin uses so much energy. And you say, well, Christmas lights use more than more than that. It's like, well, nobody really complains about Christmas lights. I mean, maybe maybe a little bit on the fringe, but nobody really complains about Christmas lights. And it, it really comes down to the question of like, whose energy is it? And are they willing to pay? And what were their other opportunities? And, you know. And it certainly doesn't matter to the, the Jewish, the Muslim, the Hindu people <laughs> out there. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> are they out there screaming like, you're boiling the oceans? Yeah. Well, this gets back to the question that we touched on at the at the very beginning, which is um, the value and the fact that it's the people of Bitcoin that that make the project valuable. Value is always and everywhere a subjective phenomenon. People like to talk about intrinsic value, and I I think that that is an oxymoron. Like the value is not intrinsic. It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Somebody perceives value. There are certain things that have intersubjective value that maybe multiple people agree on the value of something. That agreement tends to be measured when it can be in some sort of economic unit like a money. <clears throat> but you know, value is always and everywhere subjective. So when somebody says that Bitcoin wastes electricity, that's a value judgment and that's their perspective. And it's not necessarily everybody else's perspective. And everybody has their own perspective. And that's the the beauty of life. So anyway. Yeah, no, it's um it's a lot of FUD that's not going away very quickly though this is the problem right uh, especially with this esg narrative coming out now because you know companies are going to be beholden now by the um like the securities exchange for example to start uh uh what's, what's the word accounting for want of a better word accounting like their carbon credit use or their electrical use god knows where they can push this yeah, and this it, is dangerous, dangerous waters to you know in which to swim, because like you said, value is subjective. You 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 just cannot put like random prices on things. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Laser Hoddle, and I've I've been very taken by his model of what's going on uh, in terms of you know Malthusians, <laughs> and it occurs to me you know you are the carbon that they're trying to reduce. <clears throat> And it's it's unfortunate, but the root cause, the root cause. So people like to blame the state, and that's fine. I, the, but the root cause is the fact that violence wins, right? So before agriculture, our our cultural ancestors, there wasn't these are these primitive societies are often referred to as egalitarian because. You know, it, it isn't really possible to lord over anybody because if they don't like it, the conditions, they can just leave. Right. And you couldn't really have that many that many um, belongings because whatever you had, you had to carry with you to, to, to move around. But as of the advent of agriculture, it became the case because you can't get up and take your farm with you. Right. You're just stuck there. It became the case that uh, might makes right. And whoever could take the land you know you can kill the farmer and you get the land right that wasn't really the case in the in the in the pre-agricultural um, egalitarian society so we're now at the end of a you know 10 plus thousand year arc wherein uh, larger and larger defensive coalitions have culminated in these nation states that exist in relative anarchy to each other but yet still there are these supranational organizations that um that kind of bind them together, but we're at the we're at peak centralization in terms of like um, organizing the hierarchy of 
of humanity on lines of violence, of having greater violence and being able to bring violence on somebody in order to get their stuff. So the state is that entity which is most efficient at harnessing that violence. But for the first time, Bitcoin affords something that is asymmetric. So with Bitcoin, you can take it with you, right? If your keys are secure, there is no force on earth that can liberate them from you. You can still get killed. Like they can still kill you, but they don't get your Bitcoin. If they kill you, they can take your farm. But if they kill you, they don't get your Bitcoin. You keep that if you have the keys secure. And we can talk about how to do the, the, the security as a whole separate as a whole separate issue. But if the keys are secure, no force on earth can move it. So that's the end of that hierarchy. So the value people people like to say, you know, people like to estimate the future value of Bitcoin as being half of everything. And I think that's pessimistic because the value of Bitcoin is how much do you want it to be the case that nobody can take something from you? That has no upper limit. <clears throat> so for the first time in history, we have something. For the first time, I'm sorry, when I say the first time in history, I don't mean for the first time in human history. For the first time in recorded history, the records starting around the same time as agriculture, we have something that cannot be confiscated with force if properly held. It offers asymmetric defense. So if you have your wealth in Bitcoin, you can always get up and leave and take it with you. And if you if they kill you, you take it to the grave. That changes the dynamic. And the the existing hierarchical systems, uh, the pinnacle of which being this, the nation state, haven't caught up yet with the fact that they can say whatever they want, but they can't take it. So to me, this is like, <laughs> I, I, I don't say this hyperbolically. To me, Bitcoin is the most important invention since agriculture in terms of the organization of human affairs. We have an unconfiscatable asset, if held properly, that no amount of force can take. Um, and anyway, I, I don't know how long it will take for that to play out, but it means the end of this. Uh, she mentioned the ESGs. It, the only way that those ESG type dictates can function is because of the control of people through violence. If you can't control people through violence and that state organization doesn't make sense anymore. So anyway, I'm sorry, that's a super, <laughs> super roundabout and uh, meandering way of trying to address your initial question about the ESGs. But um, I think Bitcoin fixes this. I don't know how long it'll take. Yeah, this, all right. Yeah, there is so much to, to delve into there. And all right, violence. Uh, yes, as we're set up today, violence wins. And we're seeing this play out in Canada right now because they still like, uh, you know, Trudeau and his party, they still believe they have the power. They still believe they can just, you know, ramp up a little bit of violence every other day on the people and they will finally just get the message and go home. But what we're seeing on the other side of the fence and, you know, the work that's being done with, uh, you know, collecting the Bitcoin for the uh, the freedom protesters and, and whatever else, this, this, like, this is ground zero right now. It feels as though on, and people look at me cross-eyed when I say the same kind of things. Like you, you, we are living through a, a, a time in history, like you uh, analogized it to, uh, you know, the, the, the discovery of farming, this discovery of agriculture. This is a big fucking deal. And a lot of people just aren't seeing it. And it's very, very difficult to help people understand and wake them up. But the, the game theory of Bitcoin is such that the more that the incumbent states, Trudeau, a perfect example, 
keep pushing, the more these people are going to have their minds opened to the escape hatch, which we know is Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. The the current events in Canada, uh, I agree, are definitely a big um, ad campaign for Bitcoin. Uh, after those, uh, the GoFundMe um, site, and then there was another one that that are getting shut down, and the the funds are being seized, and the names of the donors, the the people who made donations are are being released, and people are being doxxed. It's like, well, maybe if if only we had an alternative monetary system that didn't have all of that KYC data attached to it. Gosh, if only there was such a thing. So I, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that this is going to be a big turning point for people. Back in um, 2011, um, WikiLeaks was having a similar funding issue, and at the time, people weren't sure if Bitcoin was up to the task of uh, you know at that you know the the network was significantly smaller, obviously. People weren't sure if Bitcoin was up to the task at that time, but it certainly is now. Um, you know, it, it's like I said, I, I have I've had full conviction for over five years now that um, it is indestructible. It, it is the thing that will survive everything else. So, yeah, we just need more people to see it. And um, to, to your point as well about, you know, like the kind of egalitarian nature of our distant ancestors, you know, just get up and leave. Uh, but you can't now. Uh, because of you know that's now your farm but you know people here in in this day and age their, their farm is their house their farm is their possessions you know that's um very very difficult and what what the nation states feels as though has been happening in the last 24 months just closing down your ability to even leave but at the same time uh attacking your private property rights it's all coming to a head very, very quickly. Yeah, well, you're right about that. Um, so this is getting back to a couple of different things, tying a few things together. And this, I apologize for meandering a little bit. I will get back to your point. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of in my nature to tie a bunch of things together. But I wanted to tie together um, uh, Laser Hoddle's comments about keeping everybody in a holding pattern. And... In the beginning of my book, my very first chapter, I, it's called Green Paper Bad. And one of the things I say in there, which now is dated, this, you know, the book was published in 2020, now seems a little dated. I said, you know, the, um, the central banks try to control the inflation rate and they, you know, aggregate price levels. And they do that by control of the money supply. Thankfully, they don't have a lot of control over the supply of goods. Um, but yet with this, uh, you know, controlled, um, well, for lack of a better word, controlled demolition, you know, holding pattern, they put everybody in, they do actually have a way to at least control the velocity of money to slow it down. So yeah, people, you know, do live in their homes. Their home is their, their castle. It's the equivalent of the farm. You can't just get up and leave. Meanwhile, all of the rest of assets have been, um, dematerialized. So you know, people talk about gold, for example, but very few people actually own gold. People who own any significant amount of gold or think that they own any significant amount of gold, generally speaking, vault their gold because vaulting gold uh, allows you to use these um, so-called good delivery bars. So good delivery is a term of art in the gold space that, that means that this gold bar, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, its origin is known. It was, you know, 
minted in a particular place and it's had chain of custody and all this and, and maintaining all of that infrastructure is expensive. So people who buy gold don't actually end up owning it. They end up, they end up owning gold IOUs or ETFs, electronically traded funds that nominally have some amount of gold, but it's all IOUs. So, you know, you have these, uh, you may remember from the global financial crisis, these mortgage-backed securities, which are dematerialized bundles of, of mortgages, which what is a mortgage, but it's a, it's a debt obligation. It's a dematerialization of the, of the house itself, or rather the debt based on the house itself. So we live in this world where everything's be, been dematerialized, but in order for that dematerialization to work, it's all been brokered and intermediated, intermediated by third parties. So anyway, to get back to your original point, yes, people have their homes. You can't just get up and leave. Even if you were willing to leave behind house, your other things that you own, if you if you own assets like stocks or like I said, if you own uh, gold ETFs or whatever, or if you even if you own bonds, like all of that stuff is all IOUs. It's all based on somebody else's promise to give you whatever it is that you nominally own. But for the first time in history, we now have something that you can actually own. If you have the keys to your Bitcoin, nobody else can have it. If you run your own node, the rules are going to be your rules. So it's that change. I have to forgive people for not getting it because it's such a huge diversion. Like people are understandably trapped in their mentality that, that there's nothing you can do in their, their hopelessness because it has been that way for decades and decades, if not, if not centuries at this point, because people talk about the gold standard, even under the gold standard, like you probably weren't holding your own gold, you know, it was all in a bank somewhere. So yeah, everything's been dematerialized except for the things that you actually own, even if you get up and leave, you have to trust that those intermediaries uh, won't betray you. And as we see with the uh, Canadian situation, those intermediaries are ready to betray you at a moment's notice if the, uh, if they get the knock on the door, but you know, I'm still hopeful, but yes, it's going to take, it's going to take time for people to get it. The private property rights are being rewritten right now with Bitcoin. Well, yeah, great. Let's talk about that. So private property rights. So uh, I, I, I've given this a lot of thought, this concept of ownership. And I think there are three different meanings of the word ownership that are currently um, competing. In nature, what you own is what you can defend. Like if you were just out in the forest and there's, you know, wild animals and stuff, you know, what you own is like what you can actually defend. Can you defend your compound or your, your cabin or whatever it is against bears and, you know, deers and coyotes and whatnot, right? So in nature, Ownership is what you can defend. In society, it's also what you can defend, but it's, it's ownership in society is what you can get away with, right? what the law allows. right? So there's, um, there's a uh, jurisdictional body, there's, um, uh, what's it called? Courts you know, that adjudicate disputes, right? Uh, ownership is nine-tenths of the law, but ownership in society is what you can get away with. Ownership in Bitcoin is knowledge, right? Do you know the keys? full stop, that's it, period. Like you either have the keys or you don't. And that is wildly different from the intermediated, like uh, interpersonal judicial system type ownership and different from the, you know, what you can defend might makes right nature ownership. It's a new thing. It's, it's knowledge. Ownership is knowledge. And so, yes, to your, to your point, property rights are being rewritten, but that's because you don't need a property right to own Bitcoin. It's yours because you know the keys. Nobody is granting you that. And it relies on nobody's, nobody else's, um, 
It doesn't require anybody else to uphold any kind of bargain. It's not an IOU. It's, it's, it's yours and it's based on your knowledge. So yeah, it's a new thing and it's going to take people a while to figure out. What a lot of people, I, I have trouble kind of expressing this, this idea across to people that um, when we're talking about, you know, property rights and I, I use the analogy of, of somebody owning a house, right? because this is what generally most people strive to do. Like that's uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, shelter. And from a man's perspective, that is the, you know, it's a primal instinct, must find shelter, must protect those around me. Uh, and a lot of people that uh, sit in there with, within their homes, even, you know, they've got a mortgage, they still th feel as though that that home is theirs. Even with a paid off mortgage, then they have an even higher sense of entitlement. But what they don't understand is even if you've got a paid off house, if you don't pay the local monopoly on violence, their dues on taxes and whatever these taxes might be called in different jurisdictions around the world, whether that's council tax or poll tax or municipal tax, I don't know. Then guess what happens to your house? It's not yours all of a sudden. It's, it's, we've, we've had somehow this idea of private property rights completely beaten out of us. But at the same time, it's, it's been an, an amazing sleight of hand by the state to, 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 to actually, have people believe that they owe 250 grand on a house, but they still believe that the house is theirs at the same time. It's completely, it's just wrong. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And I've given that some thought too. And it, it is the nature of life, I guess. And I, I mean that in the, the greatest the greatest expansive sense of the word. It is the nature of life that anything that lives, any, any organization that persists against entropy must maintain its boundaries, right? Every cell in your body has to build up that, that boundary, that cell membrane. Uh, every plant that grows has to grow up and protect itself from the elements. And that takes energy. There has to be an energy gradient in order to maintain its boundaries. Like boundaries have to be maintained. And so to the degree that you want to live in a place and that place is yours, then that place is kind of like your, your cell boundary. It's, it's, you know, like the bird's nest. It's like, it, it has a boundary and it has to be maintained. And in the absence of your continued maintenance, it would degrade. And that is always true. There are always costs. Everything that exists that has a boundary has to have that boundary maintained. And that, and that cost has to be paid because if the cost is not paid, then it will devolve to entropy. So in the case of, you know, do you own your house and that there's, you know, the state wanting to come and, and take their peace. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you want to maintain that boundary, you have to, um, you have to either be prepared to harden it against the attackers who would come and seize it from you or pay them off. Um, but ultimately it comes down to the greater force, right? And whoever has the greater force gets to make the rules uh, or such was the case again, before Bitcoin in Bitcoin, we finally have something that, that transcends that um, might makes right centralization of, of, of violence model. Um, and it's going to take a while. That's why I don't think that the, I don't think that the value of Bitcoin is in any way limited by the value of everything else. Like if you could somehow calculate the economic value of all real estate and all companies, you know, everything that exists, if you tried to calculate all that value and you say, well, the, the limit of Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin could be worth 
as much as all that, I think it could be worth substantially more because value is subjective. And the value of Bitcoin is based on how much you want the thing that nobody can take that is not subject to uh, somebody coming along with a bigger stick and saying, no, you have to pay me tribute now. And so I, I you know, people still say like, oh, the government can shut it down. It's like, no, they can't. Because as soon as you start to do that, as soon as you start to do that um, mental exercise, you, the, the way that I, I'm sorry, I'm rambling again. Let me slow down. <laughs> when someone says to you, the government can shut it down, in my opinion, the appropriate response is how. You just ask them how, how would they do that, right? And once you ask how, they'll realize they have no idea. They have no way. They, they, don't, they don't know enough to answer that question. And you say, when you can come up with a plausible way they could do it, then I'll accept your answer. You're, you're saying that the government could do it. I want to know how. Unless you can tell me how, like there's really nothing left. But because people think of the government as this uh, omnipotent, omnipresent entity with unlimited power, they, they're just, they have this defeatist attitude like, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin exists at the whim of the government. And, you know, if they wanted to shut it down, they could, they could. And it's like, no, they could not. If you, you have to present to me <laughs> how they would actually go about doing it. Who are they going to go after? How are they, you know, what resources are they going to bring to bear? What are the opportunity costs for those resources? Like what else could those resources have been doing that they're now deciding not to do, right? Because the opportunity cost of anything is what else you could have been doing. But anyway, so I'm sorry, sorry for rambling. I, I feel I love really it, rambly mate. today. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. But, and, and it's such a defeatist attitude as well, right? It's like, oh, well, yeah, neat, neat idea, but, um, you know, the powers of be would, would never allow it. So therefore, vis-a-vis, -vis, it's never going to work. And I'm never going to look at it. So I'm just going to go back to doing my day-to-day -day drudgery, nine to five, whatever it is, six till eight getting a laptop at, at home, answering emails, never see my kids, put on weight. I mean, what, what, okay. So like who owns you? Yeah. Yep. So I, I, you know, what do you own? What does ownership mean in nature? Ownership is what you can defend in society. It's what you can get away with in Bitcoin. It's what do you know? If you know the keys, it's yours. If you don't know the keys, it's not yours. And, and that's it. And everything else, like once, <clears throat> God damn, this reprograms everything, right? Because, you know, once we have people understanding that about Bitcoin, and thank you, Justin, again, for, for helping us with this uh, big push. You know, he, he has no idea how many people he's orange pilling right now. It's brilliant. Um, once people get that idea, then people want to actually own their houses, you know, that that's the first thing. It's like, what, what what do you mean? Like, no, if I can own my Bitcoin, then I want to own my house. So why am I paying you guys X amount per year to malinvest or misallocate this capital onto ridiculous projects that nobody in the society actually ever voted for or even wants? You know, that, that there's no stopping this. this. This genie is out of the bottle. Yeah, yeah, it's... um. One of my one of my favorite books is uh, "Stranger in a Strange Land." Have you read that book? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Um, I won't give away uh, I won't give away anything um, too much about it, but there's a concept in there that. Well, no, this is this is unfortunately going to spoil too much of the book. Okay, so 
Go for it. I've got a whole pile of shame that I've got to read. So, you know, I might get to this one in a year or two. So in, in the book, Stranger in a Strange Land, I'm going to have to say that uh, spoilers for that book are, are expired because this book came out, uh, I think, in the, the 50s is when it was published. So I, I'm going to say it's okay. Right. But towards the end, um, the main character, uh, Michael Valentine Smith, who grew up on Mars, um, was concerned that he had destroyed competition, right? Because um, in within the net, within his uh, organization, there was no competition. Everybody, everybody uh, cooperates. And Jubal Harsha, who is my spirit animal and who is um, his kind of advisor, uh, you know, the, the most knowledgeable earthling that he had encountered, says, you haven't destroyed competition. Like, you've just upped the ante. Like, now everybody has to compete with you. Like, you are the most successful, you know, whatever. And, and this, this made Michael feel fine about, you know, having not destroyed humanity. <clears throat> but to your point about... Um, Bitcoin, yes, it changes everything. And what I foresee happening, and let's see how this plays out with the, the Canadian truckers, because it, it ties back into that. So the Canadian trucker situation, they had all their funds, you know, seized from GoFundMe and from whoever else, and everything's leaked. And here's Bitcoin saying, like, we're ready, you know, Bitcoin's here, we can use this. The the Canadian truckers that adopt Bitcoin will be more successful than the Canadian truckers that don't. The businesses that adopt Bitcoin will be less subject to state intervention than ones that don't. There was a gym in um, New Jersey somewhere that was kind of famous during 2020, during the beginning of the lockdowns, for allowing their gym members to come, you know, unmasked and and participate, and, and the gym wasn't going to shut down, and they were collecting dues or whatever, and ultimately the local magistrate decided that this had to be put a stop to. And so then they seized their bank account. They, the bank accounts were seized because they were being fined like $5,000 a day or whatever for continuing to violate whatever the local was. So eventually they just, they just say, yep, we're just going to seize your bank accounts. The gyms that operate on a Bitcoin standard will be more successful than the gyms that operate on a fiat standard. So <clears throat> Bitcoin ultimately will become a survival trait. Like the businesses that adopt a Bitcoin standard will become resistant to tyranny that their competitors will not be. And so I, I look forward to that uh, playing out. And I think it'll be interesting to see how this um, Canadian trucker situation uh, you know, evolves as, as we were saying, because now there's a, an alternative to the GoFundMe's of the world that um, is on a, the, with the, what's it called? Hong Kong HODL or something? The, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, big, big respect to the guys, Benny Sessions, Greg Foss, and Jeff Booth, who are doing uh, amazing work on behalf of the community. And I know Bitcoiners from around the world have been helping the guys out and, and sending some across. And even, you know, big shout out again to Laser. He, he was um, putting together a, uh, an initiative to get a billion sats across to the guys, which I think got across the line. I've got to double check with him. But uh, all right. So to, to, to rest on that point, yes, it makes you... Um, immune to tyranny but it also protects you against from uh, for, uh against inflation which you know you, you've got uh, a nice little little bit of segment in your book here inflation and your wages and this is something again like the, the the wonderful game theory that is all coming out together at the same time as we're having all of this go on in canada and other parts of the world they're not the only freedom convoy that's um going on at the moment we've got one in the netherlands one in paris uh there's another one there was going to be one all over the uk i'm not sure i've not followed that one too closely or i've not seen anything about it yet but inflation 
right? If you can protect your business against the tyranny of having your bank accounts frozen or your private property stolen or being shut down or forced to shut down or just forced out of business, um, by holding Bitcoin, you can protect yourself against that. But if that doesn't come, if that threat doesn't come, at least you can protect yourself against the inflationary measures that are coming, which is another threat to your business. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. The, um, you know, there's really, I, I feel like credit where due, the powers that be have done a really good job of making people believe that inflation is somehow good for them, mm -hmm. um, when in fact the opposite is the case. Money, people think of as the unit, they think of it as the thing you measure other things against. And because they think of it as a unit, like a ruler, they think of it as something that doesn't change. But yet when the money becomes worth less, that's what inflation is. It's your money buys you less. The goods have become worth more relative to the money. And so because of inflation, which people unfortunately have mistakenly taken the bait and, and think of as, as good for them, but because of inflation, you're, on, you're constantly on a treadmill, like whatever you've saved is losing value. So uh, yeah, I do talk about this in, in the book a little bit where I explain, some people will say, well, you know, my wages go up over time with inflation, so it doesn't really affect me. It's like, no, maybe not in terms of your, of the instantaneous moment that you get your wages, but anything that you've saved is now worth less as a result, like your savings are now, have now been devalued. Um, but yeah, inflation is inflation is a scourge, and it's um, it's it's a hidden tax. It's it's the means by which uh, the state siphons value from you and and gives it to the 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 hierarchical bureaucracy. It's really it's really sick. And uh, is there even another layer on top of that? Because if there's a you know if there's a higher price on everything, then of course you're paying a slightly higher price on the GST, the good services tax, or the VAT, the value added tax. Value added tax is the best oxymoron. Is you know, what what value has been added from uh, from those that are collecting those payments? Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited about the the uh, the again the good money situation because in an environment where you, where the money is no good, it it monetizes other things. So, and the worse the money is. The currency. I have to say currency. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. be more clear. You want to tell the, the listeners why? Like the difference right there between money and currency. What, those that might be like, yeah, what's we'll he? Where oh. the rabbit hole is going down here? Sure. So, um, you know, not to get into an argument about words because, you know, arguing definitions I find to be generally unprofitable, but to talk about the difference between currency and money. Currency, you know, comes from the same root word as current. It means it circulates. And typically it is the role, uh, you know, the state takes on the role of uh, deciding what constitutes currency, what what circulates within the realm. Money is, in my opinion, well, you know, economists will tell you money serves the purposes of uh, unit of account, store of value, and medium of exchange. But moneyness is that the idea that uh, this is something that you hold in exchange. And so humans create money all the time. You know, kids in school will you know, when I was a kid, it was pogs, these little like uh, circular discs that kids would hit with a, <laughs> a metal thing of some sort, and you could, you could trade them. But, you know, candy, um, you know, kids will unitize some toy, and then that'll be, that'll be a money for them. 
So moneyness is just a, it's a human behavior. It's a thing that people do in order to transact. But currency is usually, generally speaking, um, that form of money or credit uh, or debt that the state deems um, is payable for debts in the realm. So anyway, so uh, currency. So the worse the currency is, the more, the more, sorry, the less durable goods it uh, monetizes. So in the United States, the money is pretty good. Like uh, worldwide uh, wise, the United States dollar is pretty solid having the exorbitant privilege of being the world's reserve currency since the Bretton Woods agreement. So the dollar is pretty good. So it, it, but it's still bad, but, it, but, but it's not as bad as other places. And so it monetizes uh, really just the most durable goods like homes. So people see their homes increasing in value. Uh, and that's not because their home suddenly got better. Like when you live in a home, it gets worse. Like there's wear and tear, you know, you have to perform again, every, everything that exists requires its boundary to be maintained. So unless your house is like, unless you're constantly working on it to improve it, it ought to be going down in value simply by virtue of being older by the fact that you've been living in it. So the fact that people's homes have been increasing in value is actually an, uh, an indictment of the currency being bad. It, at times when the currency is even worse, it monetizes other goods. So I, I like to think of goods as having kind of a hierarchy. Homes are at the top of that hierarchy in terms, not hierarchy, um, just like a scale. Towards the top, there's a picture of this in chapter 10. But towards the top of that scale is houses. Those are very durable. Slightly less durable would think things like automobiles. Slightly less durable would be things like appliances in your home. Uh, slightly less durable than that would be maybe like furniture and then clothing and then food down at the bottom. So if your money is only a little bad, you're sorry, your currency, if your currency is only a little bad, then maybe it just monetizes the homes and you see home values increasing. If your money is a little worse, if you're sorry, if your currency, if your currency is a little worse, then it might monetize the next thing, which is automobiles. And we actually have seen that in the last year or two that used automobiles are going up in value. That's an indication that the currency is, is bad or it has gotten worse. If it's worse than that, then it starts to monetize other things that are in your home, like appliances. If your money is really bad, if sorry, if your currency is really bad and it's hyperinflating, then it monetizes food. And this is when you start to run into people who uh, they want to get to the store to get in front of the price changes so that they can buy things before they devalue, right? Where even food on your shelf, like beans on your shelf, is more valuable than holding the currency because it's because it's. Uh, it's uh, deflating so much. So anyway, all of this is, a, again, a, a really long roundabout way of saying that the worse your currency is, the less durable the goods are that it monetizes. When your currency is pretty good, maybe it only monetizes homes. Um, what Bitcoin does is it demonetizes everything else by being the better money. It's, be, it's better at storing value than anything else because of properties that we can discuss. And so because it is the um, apex value storage mechanism, it demonetizes other things. So in life, in the, in the, you know, the Western world that's relatively well off, we don't think of water as being something that is difficult to acquire. I mean, water fountains are just out. Like you can, people give away water. The further up the hierarchy you go, the more abundance you get if the money is better. So people complain about lack of housing, but that's because housing has been monetized by bad currency. Right now, used cars are being monetized by bad currency. The worse the currency is, the more things are monetized and therefore scarce. But by demonetizing everything else, Bitcoin makes things more abundant. So what I predict will happen is 
as more and more people adopt Bitcoin as their storage value, it will demonetize all these other things, including housing. In a natural, in a natural case, you would expect housing to get, again, you would expect it to devalue because as they build new houses, your house is not as valuable anymore because the new house is better. Your house is losing, should be losing value in real terms, in, in Bitcoin terms, because as you live in it, it now has more years of life that have been lived in that house. So I, I predict that Bitcoin will make everything else that makes quality of life important abundant. These housing crises that we can continue to hearing about will be will be de uh, demolished by the fact that Bitcoin is a better store of value. And the reason we have a scarcity of housing is because the currency is bad. And anyway, on a Bitcoin standard, I expect housing to be as a as like everything else to be as abundant as as people need it to be. It will be abundant, right? <laughs> Excuse me. And this is um. You know, to Jeff uh, Jeff Booth's point, when in his book uh, "The Price of Tomorrow," um, did, uh, did you read that? I haven't read it yet, but I've listened to uh, him on a number of podcasts. Yeah. So, so like, uh, it, it's what he's saying is exactly what you're saying right now, and people are scared of deflation. They've they've pulled a real number on people. Like, you know, inflation good, deflation bad. If we have deflation, everything goes to shit. Everything's going to close down. You guys are all going to just, you know, die of cold or, you know, whatever else. <laughs> the total opposite is true. Yeah. So if you, yeah, inflation and deflation are, again, words that, um, words that have been a little bit um, abused. But if you, if you take the, if you take the definition of inflation to be prices increasing terms or currency terms, and if you take deflation to mean prices going down in, you know, unit of account terms, then for either inflation or deflation, price is changing. Either of two things could be the case. It could be that the currency, the unit is changing value, or it could be that the goods that you're trying to buy are changing in value, right? As Jeff points out, it is the natural course of human affairs that things ought to be getting cheaper in a fair unit of account, a true unit. I have to say true unit, a unit that, that doesn't change. In a true unit of account, things ought to be getting cheaper. It is easier now to acquire a blanket than it was 100 years ago. And it was easier then than 100 years prior. There's no reason that blankets should go up in price. They should be going down precipitously over time, as should housing. It should be easier to acquire housing now than it should be at any previous time in history. Same thing with everything. The only reason why things get more expensive is because the money the the units these currency units are worth less and and that really is the the great theft it's such a it's difficult to get that across to people all right let's talk about the the people of bitcoin because you know chapter four is dedicated to that in the book and you this is something that you you definitely want to riff on so i'm going to go through like the the different people of bitcoin and uh just throw the word at you and then you can riff on um the the different people so number one hodlers <laughs> yeah so uh, i don't remember the exact words that i that i used to describe them but these are people who believe in the ultimate thesis uh that you know bitcoin is the way that we will eventually come to measure all value these are people who hold bitcoin and um believe in its value proposition do you want to tell the uh, the new people here why it's misspelled? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, a uh, fellow by the name of Game Kiyubi, I want to say. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, 
misspelled it in a post on uh, one of the Bitcoin talk forums. Um, the year escapes me off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, hodling was just a misspelling that, um, that took hold and uh, now everybody uses that misspelling. All right, so this, this, this bunch of rabble rousers, the hodlers are these people that just believe in Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, put it in their hardware wallets, keep hold of their keys, keep their keys very safe, make sure that that property is theirs and they're not going to sell it back out unless they really, really have to. Yes. All right. Miners. Oh yeah. Miners. So um, this has changed, uh, but, but yes, I'm a miner, a Bitcoin miner is somebody who runs the, an ASIC, somebody who runs the specialized hardware um, dedicated to producing the, the SHA-256 hashes for Bitcoin's proof-of-work algorithm. And why are they important? Oh, uh, sure. So miners um, are long Bitcoin. They're speculators, just like everybody else. And they're the ones who serve at the pleasure of node operators, people who run nodes. Um, your full node is what uh, confirms that all of the blocks that are mined meet the rules that, that you've agreed to. Miners serve at the pleasure of node operators by providing blocks that have uh, sufficient work. It's, it's part of the whole balance of the system. Miners are awarded uh, block rewards and fees in exchange for the work that they produce. And um, yeah, they, as a, <laughs> As we saw in 2017, ultimately they're profit motivated and, and they're going to make the blocks that people want. And what, what, what I like about this specific group of people is it's changing again. It started off originally as plebs in their basement, mining Bitcoin on their graphics computer cards, uh, you know, on any kind of laptop. Then it got very, very specific that changed. A lot of people couldn't afford the machines. Then it became very much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not industrialized, but uh, it, it takes a lot of money to run a big mining farming operation. It's a professional thing to be doing now. This is th th There's huge amounts of money behind this and the big corporations uh, are running this. But now in the last, well, since the book has even been written, perhaps, we, we see this emergence again of home mining. Yeah, I was definitely surprised by that because I, I had definitely thought of mining as being an industrial business that, um, that concerns that could do economies of scale would, would be in, invested in. But yeah, since, um, since the China ban in 2021, there, there has definitely been a dispersion of that. And also for people who want to uh, DCA, KYC, which, uh, which is a lot of acronyms. But if you want to DCA KYC, home mining is a way to do that. So use your ASIC to DCA KYC. People will know what that means if they're, if they're hodlers. Yes, they will. And for those that don't, dollar cost average. And uh, yeah, no KYC is uh, escaping the, uh, the know your customer rules. All right, man. Well, developers and researchers, who are they and why are they important? Yep. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the software engineers that, that write uh, the Bitcoin code. This includes not just the core software, but wallets, um, uh, including the firmware for signing devices, uh, sometimes sometimes called hardware devices, or software wallets, or mobile apps, or 
um, payment terminals or, or lightning, you know, all of that stuff uh, is code that has to be written and tested and debugged. And those software engineers um, are responsible for making that, that software happen. They're important. And the researchers are people who, um, you know, for, come up with the potential improvements, uh, you know, things that we take for granted today, like lightning, uh, started as a white paper, started as somebody's idea of how we could do onion routed um, payments through payment channels. So, you know, researchers and software engineers um, imagine and create the software and firmware and hardware that uh, keep the system going. Have you dabbled? Do what? Have you dabbled? Oh, um, yeah, I've done a, I've done a little bit of software for Bitcoin. Uh, I was I was working on my own um, multi-sig setup for my own cold storage, and uh, there was a feature that I wanted out of uh, Sparrow Wallet that it didn't have. So I added the feature and submitted a pull request, and that got added to the code. So nice, man. So you Thanks. you are Bitcoin Core Dev? Is that <laughs> no. No, no, not, no, not, not at all. So Sparrow, Sparrow Wallet is um, a Java-based uh, GUI application that runs on the desktop. Uh, in my, it's my favorite uh, of the modern um, software desktop applications. And uh, no, it's Java-based. Whereas Bitcoin Core is, I want to say, written in C plus uh, plus. No, I haven't, I haven't contributed to Bitcoin Core. My contributions to Bitcoin include um, this feature that I added to Sparrow, which I can describe. Uh, I recently made uh, some visualizations for uh, trying to price ASICs. Um, and one that I'm especially proud of is this uh, seed picker playing cards concept, which is a way to use a deck of playing cards to produce a BIP39 seed phrase. So you can huh, take a shuffle how'd you deck. Do that? How'd you do that? that that's interesting. Um, yeah, so a shuffled, so people like to talk about entropy. So, um, uh, you have your 12 word seed phrase in Bitcoin and you have your 24 word seed phrase, the protocol, the, the BIP that describes those 12 and 24 words is called BIP 39. It actually allows for other numbers of words. Like you can do like an 18 word seed phrase, but nobody does that. People usually either do 12 or 24, a 12 word seed phrase encodes, uh, 128 bits of entropy. That is Bitcoin's, um, like minimum necessary bits. Like you need, you need 128. Having more than 128 uh, doesn't really improve your security uh, from a cryptographic standpoint. And the reason is because even if you have more bits of entropy in your seed than that, your attacker only has to do 128 bits worth of work to, to decode. So that's, that's as I understand it. I'm not a cryptographer. I, you know, <laughs> I, I make web pages. Um, so... 128 bits, and then a, tw a 24 word seed phrase encodes 256 bits of entropy. Okay, so that's background knowledge. If you shuffle a deck of cards, you can think of how many different combinations, how many different ways are there to shuffle a deck, right? How many different orderings are there of cards? And if you convert that astronomical number of orderings into bits, the equivalent like of bits, it's about 225. So a shuffled deck of cards has the equivalent entropy of about 225 bits which is way more than the 128 that you need. So what I was trying to figure out was how can I take that shuffled deck of cards and convert it into a seed so that 
because because the skill of shuffling cards is widespread. Lots of people are able to do it. Deck of decks of cards are everybody. You know, everybody's got a deck of cards in their kitchen drawer somewhere. You can just pull it out. So I wanted to have a procedure that was easy to do, hard to mess up, and that reliably produced a seed phrase out of a deck of cards shuffled. And so that's what I ultimately came up with. The the, the technique that I came up with out of the 225 possible bits that you could get from a shuffled deck of cards, it preserves about 205. So it gives up about 20 bits, but still 205 is still billions of billions of times uh, more complexity than the 128 uh, bits necessary um, to, meet, to meet Bitcoin's bar. So how would one go about making a seed phrase using this, this method? Yep. So... Um, <laughs> So, so you start by shuffling the deck of cards and, okay, let, let me, let me put it this way. So this would obviously be much easier with visuals, but because this is a podcast, yeah. I'm going to try to describe it <laughs> uh, without visuals. There are 52 ways to pick a card out of a deck, right? There's 52 cards in a deck. Once you've picked one card out of a deck, there's 51 that remain. So there's 52 times 51 ways of picking two cards, right? In my system, I call that a tuple, right? It's not a pair because they might not be the same number, right? But it's two cards. So two cards out of a deck, there are 52 times 51 ways of picking two cards out of a deck. Two, 52 times 51 is 2,600 and change, okay? Now, if you look at the BIP39 uh, seed phrase uh, dictionary, there are 2,048 words. Okay, so I know, I'm going to spew out a bunch of numbers, but you have 2,600 ways of picking two cards, and you have roughly 2,000 words in the list. So that leaves an extra 600 possible combinations of two cards than what you really need, which is about 2,000. Okay, so what my procedure does is it, it gets rid of those extra 600 combinations. It's like a little solitaire game. So what you do is you shuffle a deck of cards, and then you flip over one card, and then you flip over another card. And if those two cards have different suits, they're, they're not the same suit, then they're great. You just set those two aside, okay? Then you flip over another card, another card. If they're different suits, you set them aside, right? You're stacking up, you're stacking up cards. If they're the same suit, just leave them on the table and flip over one more card. And if that one's a different suit, then take those two and, and move it. And now you have one remaining, flip over one card if it's a different suit take them and set them aside, right? So all you're doing is you're taking, you're just taking sets of two cards at a time that are different suits, okay? Eventually you get to the bottom of the deck. At the end of the deck, you might have a few that are the same suit, right? You might have two or four that are the same suit. That's okay, right? So there's 52 cards in a deck. Divided by two is 26. So there's 26 tuples. A seed phrase has 24 words in it, but really only the first 23 are what we care about. The last one is uh, a checksum, right? So we're going to ignore that. So we need 23 words. So even if you have six cards at the end of the deck that are um, the same suit, you don't care because you only need the first 23 tuples. You only need the first 23 sets of two cards that come out of it. So you shuffle a deck and then you perform this little solitaire game. And what you end up with is a stack of tuples, each of which represents one word, which you can then look up in a you can look up in a lookup table. I might have one here. It's going to take me a second to find it. 
Sure. And we should probably let the listeners know that are like thinking, what the hell is BIP39? That's 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 something we may have should have, we should have addressed at the beginning. But, right. but let's make that clear now. Sure. I'm sorry. So okay, BIP BIP stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. Changes to Bitcoin of any description generally wind up as BIPs. There's been a number of BIPs. Um, when people talk about having uh, wallets based on seeds, oftentimes that means they're using what's called a hierarchical deterministic wallet, HD wallet. The HD specification is described in BIP32. The way to encode the seed for an HD wallet is described in BIP39, which proposes to use a dictionary of words to map uh, to sets of bits. I actually, so I made a, um, a notebook. So your, your listeners might not know what a notebook is. So in programming, a notebook is an interactive web page that allows you to perform some computation. Um, I made a notebook, uh, I forget what it was exactly called, but it was for, um, it was for understanding uh, the seeds for understanding how the words map to the bits of the seeds. Um, so we can link to that, or I'll give you a link to that and you can do with it as you please. But anyway, so BIP39 is a description of how to use English words, or there's a few other um, languages supported, to encode your seed, which is uh, the random value that determines the addresses for your wallet. But anyway, so I found what I was looking for. So. I have this PDF, which your listeners won't be able to see, but I can provide you a link to this. But this is the description of how to play the seed picker solitaire game. And then once you have your list of uh, once you have your list of cards, then you can go and look up what each set does. So, like if your first card is the ace of spades, and your second card is the ace of hearts, then that would be the word ability, right? Oh boy. Yeah. And if your first if your first card is the ace of spades and your second card is the king of diamonds, that would be the word addict. Right. So this 13 pages uh, that you can print out um, allows you to convert a deck of cards into a, a Bitcoin seed. Right. And the reason why that was important to me is because I don't want to trust the entropy on some kind of a device. Generating randomness is a notoriously difficult problem, especially for computers that are not constantly on. So, uh, you know, people say not your keys, not your coins, not your node, not your rules. Uh, in my opinion, if it's not your entropy. It's not your seed material. Like you need to be generating your own randomness. I like decks of cards. I'm comfortable shuffling. I know lots of people are comfortable shuffling. The people have made mechanisms for flipping coins to produce seeds or rolling dice. Uh, but I wanted to do it with a deck of cards. And so that's why I came up with this uh, procedure. I've seen the coins and I've seen the dice before, but I did. This is, this is new to me, mate. And, and it's, it's awesome. I, I, I've I've got a I've got a wallet here that I need to um, to set up, and this is what I'm going to do now. I'm actually looking forward to generating the the seed phrase and going to grab a, a pack of cards. So thank you. Oh yeah, no problem. I'm I, I, happy to take any feedback that you have about that process. Uh, but I want to sh I'll show you something else. Again, your listeners won't be able to see this, but um, I made I made a deck of cards that has the seed words written on them. So stop. <laughs> so, 
So this has like the pips. It's usable as poker cards. So you can see uh -huh. this is the Queen of queen Hearts. Of it hearts. has the, yeah. the Queen of Hearts in the top corner, and then it has like the various words. So if you roll, if you did a Queen of Hearts and then you opened up a King of Spades, it would be the word Jar, and the word Jar is written on there, on the card. So this is a this is a set of playing cards that um, that has the the seeds on them. It's it's a set of playing cards designed specifically for this process of making seeds. Where can people buy this pack of cards? Great question. Uh, they're not currently available. I need to. Uh, I need to get them manufactured. <laughs> well, if any plebs, if any plebs can help Jimbo get these, uh, get these manufactured and across the line or, or, or on some kind of website, then yeah, there's this is this is huge, mate. This is awesome. This oh, thanks. Is, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, it, how many? How hard have you pushed this so far? Uh, I don't see this is a, so this gets back to what I was saying earlier about um, writing not really being uh, as profitable as writing code. Um, I'm not really a marketing person. So I come up with this stuff and I just put it out there on Twitter. And I did show how to use these on the Bitcoin kindergarten show. So there's a recording of me kind of going through mm -hmm. the process once. Um, but no, I don't really, uh, I'm not really much of a marketer. So, um, you know, we're all we're all good at different things. And I'm, uh, I'm kind of an introvert, you know, I'm not really good at, uh, marketing, but, um, I am good at coming up with things, uh, sometimes. So, and the software seems to be the, the most profitable route, but anyway, so this is a non-software, uh, project. It exists as a PDF. Um, the thing that I like about it is if you, let's say you did want to flee, you know, for some reason we've talked before about, um, you know, with Bitcoin, you can take it with you. Right. So good in principle, uh, you know, take a deck of cards, shuffle it up, run through this little solitaire game algorithm, right? Put it back in the box. And that is now a seed. Like it, it is your seed and you could leave the country with a pack of cards, right? And to anybody looking, it would just be a pack of cards, but really it's your seed phrase, right? Yeah, man, that's... Yeah, it's so blowing this, my mind right now. <laughs> right, so so you know, it's not um, it, it's not foolproof, you know, because uh, the guards might uh, be like, "Hey, let me check out those cards," and then they shuffle them, and now your seeds destroyed. So <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might want to prepare for that particular contingency, but it's just it's just another it's just another idea. Or you could shuffle a deck of cards and throw it into a, a safety deposit box, and now now the seeds over there. You, right? you could even put them in like. Um... There's ways to shrink wrap them or laminate that packet or put them in a, uh, a tamper-proof bag or whatever else. Yeah, but unless somebody knew what they were looking at, you know, like it would just look like a deck of cards, you know. So I, I told this to uh, a colleague of mine named, uh, well, I'll leave his name out. I, I told this to a colleague of mine and he says, I'm going to shuffle every deck of cards I ever see now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so Simply by virtue of putting this out there, uh, I now realize it may be less effective. But yeah, so we're so early, mate. No one's, no one's, no, it, it feels as though no one's still listening to us uh, in our own little echo chamber. So, you know, regardless of what we said earlier about the, the game theory and whatever else, that there, there, there is still that element that, um, you know, even if someone was to walk into your house and pick up, that device or, uh, you know, they're probably just going to leave it because they're, they're, they're looking for cash or they're looking for laptops, something they can walk out with very, very quickly. A deck of cards. I mean, come on. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, and that's really the, the interesting thing. So people talk about brain wallets, you know, and yes, you can technically speaking, come up with any phrase or, or sequence of characters and turn it into a seed. People are not good at generating randomness by thinking about it. The things people think of uh, tend to be a fairly narrow range of things that passwords are notoriously crackable. So I would not recommend that people put significant value in a uh, in a wallet based on a seed that they just imagined. If you shuffle a deck of cards well, like I said, a shuffled deck of cards has the equivalent entropy of roughly 225 bits, which is way more than the 128 you need. You know, a shuffled deck of cards has enough entropy in it to uh, to do what you want. So yeah, you can flip coins. You could flip 256 coins, you know, and make a seed that way. You could. Uh, roll dice, but then you would need a mapping for how to take those dice rolls and map them back onto seed words. Um, that's effectively my contribution here with the seed picker solitaire is creating a mapping that allows you to take a deck of cards and map it onto a seed. When did you have this idea? Um, probably, I probably first thought about it in roughly 2020. Um, and then I came up with this procedure in 2021 like i said because i wanted really I random crash really random crash sorry that's okay about that. that's all right uh, what was the last thing you heard me say um i asked you when did you have this idea oh <laughs> sorry uh i don't know which part of this will we'll cut back in from the the podcast but uh when did i have the idea had it in about 2020 figured it out in 2021 um i guess would be what i would the short answer there must have been a point when you were like, uh, like fleshing this out in your mind oh. where there's just an epiphany. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, I think the part that might've cut out was, um, was, uh, I was mentioning Ben Flaxman's 10 X security guide. Did that part? Uh, all no, right. Yeah, that's right. It's about, it's about doing that. But was there a part that clicked for me? Um, I do have my prototypes. I, this is not the first prototype. This is the one that I printed out. I had um, some other ones. If you'll give me a second to get my props, I'll pull out an earlier prototype. I think I still have it here. Just rummage around and off, off camera. Uh, so what I have here, so these, <clears throat> this purple thing is a card sleeve uh, for Magic the Gathering. I play that. And so I have a Magic the Gathering like promo card back here and then printed pieces of paper with the seed words on them. And so you can see in this version, all of the blanks, all of the missing words are all in the same suit. That was when I had figured out the thing about the suits. An earlier version, I had the missing words spread out amongst the different, um, amongst the different, like there's holes in between uh, the words. And so <clears throat> the problem with that was you really needed the lookup table to determine whether or not a given pair of a given tuple, a given two cards that you selected, were going to yield a seed word. And that was too easy to mess up. And so that's why I came up with a thing about unsuited tuples, like two cards that have a different suit, because you can remember and you can do that offline without looking at the lookup table. Like you don't need a lookup table to know whether or not two cards are the same suit or not, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, it almost does. But, like, but you, you, you're thinking on a completely different plane. And this is clearly where like the, the software engineer brain comes in. But 
uh, and your love of gaming, right? Like Magic the Gathering, what the hell is that? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> Magic the Gathering is a trading card game. It's mm -hmm. kind of like Pokemon. It's by the same company that makes Pokemon. It's a, you know, you buy packs of cards and you can play with your friends. Okay. So. All right. It's a little bit right. higher class than Dungeons and Dragons. And this is another thing that people, um, you know, ascribe value to, right? When you were saying earlier, kids in the playground, Pokemon cards were another great example of, you know, I've got this silver card. This is now worth three. I'll swap it um, for your normal cards. Uh, there's clearly something there in your in your past that led you to creating this that is going to be valuable for Bitcoin and the, 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 the you know, creating randomness and entropy and uh, security for, for people's coins. I, I hope, I hope so. I hope it helps people. Um, you know, I, I had done, uh, you know, before that I had done wallets, um, you know, based on the, the seed words that came with my hardware wallets or, you know, seeds that my computer generated and, you know, as I learned more about security, I learned that uh, that might not be the best way to do it. Um, the, so <laughs> when the only time that you know for sure that nobody but you has, this, has your keys, the only time you know for sure is right when you do a transaction. Like if you move some coin to yourself, you know at that moment that nobody else can move it because you just did. Any other time, you're not sure. Right. If you, let's say, let's say you, you know, wrote your seed down on paper and you, you know, put it in a vault. You hope that nobody's seen it, but you, but you don't know, right. You don't know until that moment that you move it. And so let's say you get a hardware wallet and it randomly generates you some words. You write those words down. Now you use that, you, you get some value. You think that you're the only one who has it because you generated those words yourself. You hope that nobody else has them, but if somebody else has them, they could just be sitting on them until exit scam day when they decide to move them, right? So that's why I wanted to have a procedure that unambiguously, I made the words. So another way to do it would be to take all 2,048 seed words, put them into a hat, like cut them out in paper, put them into a hat and pull them out one by one. That would, that would also produce a seed. Or like I said, you could flip coins or you could roll dice. But I wanted, um, I wanted an unambiguous uh, mechanism that I could understand that would use um, a randomization procedure that I understood, shuffling cards, and produced words uh, from a seed phrase. So I was just solving my own problem there. Um, and I hope, I hope it's valuable to other people. You're freaking me out right now. I get up my game. I think a lot of people listening to this are probably thinking shit <laughs> well the time is now i mean now that now that price is uh, just crabbing sideways for months now would be a good time to think about upgrading your security the model that i like to use is uh would you be comfortable with your current security if bitcoin was worth 10 times what it currently is mm. right so if you are comfortable at 10x the current price then, then you're probably fine. If you're not comfortable at 10x the current price, then you might want to think about upgrading your security now before it's 10x the price because you don't want it to 10x. And then suddenly now you're like sweating bullets trying to figure out how to make a, you know, a multi-sig wallet and geographically distribute your hardware wallets and all that stuff. All right, before anybody goes out and does anything like fucking crazy, like grab, grab their hardware wallet and 
you know, uh, wipe it and start from scratch with the, the cards, what should people do? Like, first of all, go buy another device, right? Okay. If you already have Bitcoin and it's on a hardware wallet, what I would recommend if you haven't done it is test your recovery procedure. So I, <laughs> okay, let me, let's roll the clock back. My first hardware wallet was a Trezor and I was using it to um, store Bitcoin and I was using the default like Trezor app to do it. And then one time I was using the Trezor app and it said there's a firmware update available. And it says, do you want to update the firmware? And I, I said, yes. And it says, now be sure you have the words because and this doesn't work, it's irrecoverable. And so then I was like, well, how do I get the words out of this thing? Right now, I'd already written them down, but I wanted, I wanted to get them out. And I, after doing a web search, I found there is no way to get them out. That's a, that's a design feature of the Trezor is you cannot get the words out again. You can confirm that the words are right. If you have the words, you can say, are these the right words? And it'll tell you yes, no, but you can't get them out again. And so that was when I ordered my second Trezor. And I was like, all right, I'm going to restore. I'm going to get my second Trezor. I'm going to update the firmware. Then I'm going to restore to it and then make sure that it produces the same addresses and make sure it still works. Then I'll upgrade my first one. And so from then on, I just had two Trezors that were both up updated. And so if either one, for whatever reason, failed, I would have one that worked. So I would say to people, if you haven't ever tested your recovery procedure, you're going to want to do that. And you want to say that even if you mess up the you don't lose funds. So you don't want to test your recovery procedure on the only device that you know is working. So generally speaking, if you can afford it, and if you can't afford it, then you know that's a different question. But if you can afford it, I would say have a backup of whatever hardware it is that you're using so that you can practice your recovery procedure um, in advance of the day that you need to do it. Because on the day that you need to do it, you got to imagine like, okay, on the day that you actually have to do a recovery, that's going to be a really stressful day, right? You do not want to be figuring out for the first time how to do wallet recovery on the day you need to be doing it, right? That That's terrifying. So I recommend to people, um, providing that you're already holding your own keys and you're already using a hardware wallet, learn how to recover on another device. And it can be a different device than the one you're used to. If, you're, if you have a Trezor and you want to learn how to do it on a seed signer, that would be fine, or a cold card or whatever, you know, you'll learn something about derivation paths, uh, if nothing else. Let's talk about that because a lot of people don't realize uh, th th what's going on there. Uh, I was one until I, I figured that out. I asked the question. Let's say in your case, you had a Trezor, but you wanted to, and you know, forgive me listeners for shilling the show sponsor, but you, want, you, you wanted to switch that to a Bitbox uh, O2 by, by Shift Crypto. Um, so you buy the Bitbox, you wait for that to turn up, that turns up. What do you do next? Sure. So um, any, any given signing uh, device is going to have some kind of uh, software that will allow you to enter the words. I, I haven't used uh, the Bitbox O2, so I don't know what its procedure is for entering words, but every wallet is going to have a, a, a word entering procedure. So you, so you, you would, you'd flick on any device. I think it would say import wallet or create wallet, right? It... Uh, that sounds right. They probably all say that. They probably all say import or create. Create implies that it's going to generate a new random seed and then tell you what it is. Whereas uh, import implies that you are going to enter 
um, a seed that has previously been used. So yes, you would want to you would want to uh, use your wallet software to import uh, a seed, and then depending on the interface, um, <laughs> it'll ask you basically to to click things to to enter it. I, the reason why I'm stuck is it's been a while since I've used a hardware wallet that is USB. Um, but yeah, there, there would be a procedure for entering the words and you have to enter the words. Um, so to talk about derivation path briefly, and this is one of the criticisms of BIP39. So people, some people in the security and Bitcoin community will speak ill of BIP39. I don't speak ill of it because it's the thing that everybody uses. It's the standard. Everybody understands it. If you see a list of words, you know what it means. Um, I mean, in the Bitcoin community. So uh, I, I don't mind BIP39. But one of the criticisms of BIP39 is that it's not enough information. Like those seed words are not sufficient to generate the addresses. But let's talk about the addresses. Okay. So a Bitcoin address is something you use to receive funds. It is not reversible. It is not possible to go from the address back to the private key that can sign for that address. That one-way, that one-way um, cryptographic relationship is part of the security protocol of Bitcoin. And frankly, basically everything we do on online, HTTPS, is you know not reversible in the same way. Public key cryptography. So your address is not reversible. There's no way to go back. So then the question is like you have this seed. It produces addresses. Right? How does it know which ones belong to you? Like, you're, you have a seed and it's generating addresses. Well, the way that your seed generates addresses uh, depends on the derivation path, which is this string. It's called a path because it looks like a file path. It's got like slashes, so it'll be like m slash, you know, eighty four slash zero slash one. Right? Um, if you want to know the details of how derivation paths work. Um, uh, Antonopoulos's book, Mastering Bitcoin, uh, talks about these in depth. Um, reading BIP32 is kind of a chore. So unless you're already a software engineer, <laughs> I would recommend going to, to Andreas's description over, over the BIP proper. So you have this derivation path and the path determines the mechanism by which your seed information, these bits that are encoded in your seed phrase, in your words, the derivation path determines how those become addresses and then those addresses are irreversible. So you're booting up your software wallet and your software wallet wants to scan the blockchain to find out like what transactions have been, let's say you're doing recovery, right? So you've already done some transactions, right? You want to recover like, oh God, how do I get my funds? I'm really scared, right? So you're starting up a fresh laptop that you just bought it, bought with cash from Staples. You've installed Bitcoin Core, it's downloaded everything. And now you're trying to like recover your wallet. So your wallet has the seed words, you put in the seed words. The derivation path is how it generates the addresses. It generates a whole bunch of addresses. And then it looks at the blockchain and says, okay, find me all of the transactions that have involved these addresses. And then that's how the wallet presents to you what uh, transactions have been done and therefore what your balance is because it's just adding up all of the um, unspent transaction outputs, UTXOs. So your derivation path is a string. It looks like a file path. It's got numbers in it. It's got slashes and numbers. And it describes the means by which your seed is converted to a sequence of addresses. And in order to do wallet recovery, you need the derivation path. Now, fortunately, there are a relatively small number of derivation paths in use. Of all, because it's a string of slashes and numbers, obviously there's an unbounded number of potential derivation paths. But in practice, different wallets tend to use one derivation path. 
So whatever wallet you use, it probably just has a standard derivation path that you can look up online. So there's a, a website called uh, Wallets Recovery, W-A-L-L-E-T-S Recovery. Uh, org, I want to say, that has a listing of all the different commonly used derivation paths. But anyway, so if you have your seed correct, but your derivation path wrong, you put in your seed to recover your wallet and it tells you balance zero, no transactions, right? That's a really stressful thing. So you want to make sure that you have the derivation path correct. Um, hardware wallets, in order to sign for your transactions, need to know the derivation path. So I would suspect that uh, when you're doing your import wallet and you enter the seed words, there will be a step that will ask you for the derivation path. It probably will default to the wallet manufacturer's preferred derivation path, but you can probably override it. And I want to say, oftentimes they'll give you a list of like common ones, like, you know, select from this list of, of common derivation paths. So anyway, that's a, again, a lot of rambling. Sorry about that. No, it's uh, good. It's, it, this is all very, very good knowledge. And you know the way I understand it, uh, very uh, in, in like very layman's terms, is like you said, a lot of these derivation paths are used. Um, there's there's a standard one used by a lot of the wallet manufacturers. So if, for example, you are using a Trezor or you wanted to then get yourself an extra wallet, you can mix wallets. You can get a cold card, or you can get a Bitbox, or you can get um, uh, I don't know, shill another one, whatever. That derivation path would be generally the same. You can find this on your right walletsrecovery.org. I'm pretty sure you, you nailed that. Uh, so back back to the situation, you've got someone that's stacked. They've got their life savings now because, like you said, maybe they've been stacking for five years and that's gone up. God knows how much in in, in that time. And they have never done that heart in mouth moment of restoring a wallet. So they buy themselves a new wallet and it could be the same brand. It could be a different one. Check that website you talked about to make sure these are derivation path compatible. You open that new wallet. Instead of saying create seed or create new wallet, you hit import. And then you would put in the original 12 or 24 words that you had on your existing wallet. And that new wallet should show you exactly what is on the other one. Eventually, yes. So this now, now we get into the difference between like a software wallet and a signing device. So when you, when you, <clears throat> when you enter your seed phrase and your derivation path, what the wallet will produce is a couple of different pieces of information. One piece of information it produces is called the um, extended uh, or master key fingerprint. And that's a sequence of letters and numbers. It's a hexadecimal string of, uh, I want to say length eight. I think it's eight. Yeah, six or eight. It's six or eight characters long. And that is, um, uh, it's not unique, but it's, a, it's, a, it's mapped onto your, your um seed words and your derivation path. So it creates a master key fingerprint. Writing that down is a good idea because uh, if, especially if your wallet, um, if, if your signing device uh, firmware or, or, your, um, or your software wallet can show you that, writing that down is a good idea because that confirms that you've 
later on when you recover, it confirms that you've put in the right derivation path and you've put in the right seed words. So you want to write down the master key fingerprint. The other thing it can produce is something called an XPUB. An XPUB is a description that allows the recipient of the XPUB to produce the list of addresses, but it does not give the recipient the ability to sign any of those addresses. That's what makes it a pub. An XPUB is the extended uh, public key information that allows you to produce the public list of addresses. So somebody who gets your XPUB knows every address forever for your wallet, but they can't sign anything. So this is where we get into the difference. The, the, the word hardware wallet um, is a little overloaded because there's really two parts that you need. You need the signing device. So there's like the physical device. It runs some kind of firmware, right, on the device. Then you need a software wallet, which can communicate with it. The software wallet's job is to talk to your node. It's to look at the, the outstanding UTXO set and decide which of those it could sign for. And then it communicates a transaction to the signing device that then the signing device asks you, do you want to sign this? Do you want to spend this, these funds? So there's really two pieces there. There's the hardware wallet and its firmware. And then there's the software wallet, which runs on your laptop or your desktop and communicates with the hardware wallet. If you get uh, a, a lot of times, people will just use whatever um, software wallet their hardware wallet recommends. So as I said earlier, in my first experience, I used a Trezor. I used the Trezor wallet website, <laughs> which communicated over USB to my hardware wallet, Trezor. Um, but you don't have to. You can use a different software wallet. And so what I recommend to people is no matter what hardware wallet or wallets you choose, whatever signing devices you use, your software wallet can be something else. Examples include Electrum. The Electrum uh, client is kind of a, has been around for a long time. Uh, Sparrow wallet, which I mentioned earlier, which is one that I um, have made a contribution to, full, dis full disclosure. Another software wallet that sometimes people use is uh, Spectre Desktop. Of those, uh, and, uh, another one would be Wasabi. Um, I guess Samurai is another one. I think Samurai has a desktop app. I actually don't know, but Wasabi would be another example. So you have all these options for software wallet and that is completely independent of whatever your hardware wallet uses. So once you're recovering, so this is back again, this is all background information for the, the day that you're sweating bullets, like trying to do your recovery. So you have your new hardware wallet, you've entered your words, you entered your derivation path, you confirmed that it gives you the same master key fingerprint that you were expecting you know, um, maybe you have it show you the first couple of addresses and maybe you've written down those addresses when you first set up your wallet so you can confirm, yes, it's producing the same list of addresses. Great. All of that you can do with your hardware wallet without your hardware wallet um, talking to the blockchain. All of that is like completely blockchain independent. The moment when you want to find out, okay, what transactions have I interacted with? Now we're in software wallet land where the software wallet needs to talk to your node in order to ask the node which transactions uh, on, on the blockchain are relevant to me. That's when the XPUB that your hardware wallet can produce needs to, that XPUB needs to be communicated to your software wallet so that your software wallet can use the XPUB to determine which addresses in the UTXO set are mine, what transactions historically have I been involved in. Um, so that's that separate thing. I can talk about the difference between a couple of the software wallets. Um, like I, I haven't used uh, Wasabi all that much, so I can't really make claims about that, but uh, briefly, Electrum is uh, a long-time standing uh, GUI wallet. There's the GUI Electrum, the client. It's called the client. 
there's the Electrum client, and then there's the Electrum server. The Electrum server is software that allows for quick lookups of um, wallet information. If you're going to use Electrum, you need to run your own, you don't need to, but you should run your own private Electrum server uh, because otherwise you're revealing your XPUB to somebody else's Electrum server, which de-anonymizes that sequence of addresses. It puts, it puts all, that doesn't de-anonymize. It ties together all of together, right? So uh, that's Electrum. Uh, Spectre Desktop talks to your Bitcoin node. The benefit of that is that uh, it, it's simpler. There's no Electrum server involved. But the downside is, is that if you're doing a wallet recovery, if your wallet is four years old, it has to scan a bunch of the blockchain in order to find out if your transactions are correct. And if you're already sweating bullets to find out if you've effed your money up, waiting those minutes for it to scan the blockchain is really nerve wracking. And if you put in your derivation path wrong, it might come back with zero transactions. So you've waited all this time and it says zero transactions and now you're, now you're still like really concerned. So that's my, that's my, that's my criticism of Spectre Desktop is I wish Spectre Desktop would allow you to either use your Bitcoin node or talk to an Electrum server, like a private Electrum server. Sparrow does this. Sparrow allows you to talk to a Bitcoin core node, which will find all of the information, but it's scanning, so it's a little slower. Or Sparrow can talk to an Electrum server, just like Electrum does. And then uh, your lookups will be instantaneous, but you don't want to talk to a public Electrum server because then you're leaking privacy data. You're leaking your XPUBs. So I know that was probably a whole lot of technical jargon. Um, so I'll pause there. No, I'm a mind. And I'm sure many of the listeners. Uh, so I'm putting a little asterisk next to Sparrow. I've got to go down that rabbit hole. Um, mm. Yeah, so, 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 okay. So let's say you're interested in upgrading your security. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have your hardware wallet and you've been using your hardware wallet manufacturer's software wallet. Whether so, that's the uh, app that comes with it on, on the phone or like uh, yeah. Trezor's a good example. You can down is Trezor Bridge, I think. Um, yes. Right. Yeah, okay. the bridge. Um, Bitbox have their own app. Um, cold card? I'm not. It's cold card, good. as far as I know, does not offer a software app. You have right. to use an, a, a third party um, okay. software system. But the good news is, is that you can use any of these with the same signing device. You can use right. Electrum, you can use Spectre Desktop, you can use Sparrow, you can use any of those with the same signing device. So I would recommend trying them. And it mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, if your hardware, if your hardware wallet is doing its job, the private information never, never leaks from there, right? That's, that's the whole, <laughs> you have one job, hardware wallet, it's to keep that private information on that device. Um, you can try out different software wallets. You can try out Sparrow, Spectre Desktop, uh, probably even Wasabi. Again, I know less about Wasabi because I just haven't used it as much. Um, yeah, most of my experience is with, uh, with Sparrow and Electrum. I can hear now the plebs' minds whirring. And uh, for, for those of you that, um, that are listening, uh, yeah, don't, um, don't get too afraid. Uh, I, I think many of you probably already have the hardware wallet, which is, I think you'll agree, um, Jimbo, the, the, the very first important step. Because if you don't, if they're all on an exchange or on an app, then like first, first step, get one of these damn, you know, wallets. Yeah, I tried to, I tried to list out the steps because, uh, you know, that, that demands an ordering. So I guess 
you know, step zero is having any price exposure at all, right? Mm -hmm. Did you, you know, you bought some coin on Coinbase or something, right? And it's still on Coinbase, right? That's step zero. Step one is you have your own wallet of some kind. Like maybe you just downloaded a mobile wallet and you put it on, right? That's like step one. Step two is, okay, well, really I should use a, a dedicated signing device for signing a hardware wallet, right? Okay, well, now that you have that going for you, now you might say, how do I use uh, my hardware wallet with my own node for signing? Like rather than relying on somebody else's node for blockchain information, how do I, how do I contact my own node? And at that step, that's when you're looking at using something like Spectre Desktop or Electrum with Electrum Server or Sparrow with either a node or Electrum Server. But running, uh, and okay, let me talk about Electrum Server just real briefly. So as I said, so so in the beginning there was Electrum, right? <laughs> and Electrum was both the client and the server. Those two things kind of became decoupled. And so there's the Electrum client. And then when you boot up the Electrum client by default, it'll search out on the web and just connect Electrum server, which I don't like. You can provide a command line argument to say, no, I really want to connect just to this server that I specify. But by default, I think it'll just connect to anybody. So you have the Electrum client, and then it talks to an Electrum server. The Electrum server implementation became, um, the original implementation was not up to the task with the growing blockchain. So a couple of different people made competing implementations. One of those is called Electrum X. Uh, that's the one that I run because that's what was available when I was setting up my server and I haven't messed with it. Another popular option is called electors, E-L-E-C-T-R-S, which is written in Rust. And uh, that's the one that I think comes with like MyNode and Umbral. So if you run like a MyNode or an Umbral, it'll be running an Electrum server implementation. I believe it runs electors. Uh, which one you use doesn't make a big difference as long as you're connecting to your own private Electrum server. Um, I don't remember what we were talking about before that, so I'll pause there. Yeah, we were just talking about um, the steps to go through the steps. Make oh. sure you've got a hardware wallet. Like, yes, you know, please. If anyone's yes. listening, and if you're new to this game, make sure you get one of these things. Uh, yep. So get yeah. So step step zero: have some price exposure. Step one: have a wallet that is yours. Uh, step two: upgrade to a signing device that keeps your stuff secret keeps your stuff safe, a hardware wallet. Um, once you get past that, the next thing to do is to make sure that you're transacting with your own nodes, so you're not leaking privacy information. Once you go to that step, you kind of by necessity end up running your own um, software wallet because uh, you, you know, again, I, I, unfortunately Trezor is what I'm most uh, familiar with in this regard. Um, when you run Trezor and you talk to the Trezor bridge, the Trezor bridge is going to be talking to Trezor, the company's Bitcoin nodes, right? So once you go from having a hardware wallet to wanting to talk to your own node, you necessarily have to make a choice about what software wallet you want to run. My favorite, having tried a bunch, is Sparrow. But again, full disclosure, I've you know made some changes to that code that I needed it to do. We, we, we skipped a beat with the whole node thing but i i, I oh, sure that, yeah <laughs> that's probably that, that that could probably be a whole different episode but um all right let's leave let, let, let's put a pin in the hardware wallet stuff for now um but uh, you know underlying message is please buy one whoever is listening and uh, if you've already got one consider 
uh, getting another one and, um, and 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 playing around with it and upping your your security. Uh, but before that, Jimbo, we were going through the the people of Bitcoin, and we got trapped oh, in an amazing rabbit hole, which uh, is really great. Um, all right, but we we did get up to how much more time do you have? We've already done two hours almost. I don't have anything else scheduled for today. All right, be prepared, listeners. This could be a five-hour special. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the the next group of people. Uh, Traders. Yeah, traders. So uh, when I fell when I fell into the rabbit hole in 2017, um, uh, so it's it's my nature to just try things when whenever uh, it's not clear what to do. So that's why back in 2013 uh, I got a Mount Gox account was because I didn't, you know, yes it was shady to uh, send a selfie and um, a scan of your driver's license to uh, uh, some company in Japan, but that was the that those were the stakes. Like that was what was required to play in the game at that time. Um, so, you know, fast forward to uh, 2017, I tried to learn how to do trading, and I watched an embarrassing number of hours of like tone vase, like trading Bitcoin and listening to him talk about green numbers and red numbers and all of this, uh, and. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't trade. Uh, it's not it's not worth doing. Uh, even if you're right, you'll you can be wrong um, because uh, capital gains taxes is computed in fiat terms, not in Bitcoin terms. So I'll leave it at that. But anyway, so traders, uh, so traders try to um, eke out a profit by uh, buying and selling, um, you know, Bitcoin and fiat at at relative rates. The reason that they're important is because they provide liquidity for people who want to get in and out. If you uh, are a miner and you have expenses denominated in fiat and you need to pay those expenses, you need somebody to buy the Bitcoin that you've mined for fiat and traders provide that liquidity. Traders and hodlers, but hodlers, you know, they come and buy when they when they have the opportunity, but traders are in there constantly trying to scalp each other. So. Um, the reason why traders are important, in my opinion, is because they are reactive to volatility. The more volatility that there is, the more attractive it is to traders. And then if it's less volatile, it might be less interesting to them or they end up trading on leverage and getting wrecked. But the point is, is that it's an, there's a natural balance between the interestingness of the Bitcoin price and traders' desire to trade in it. And so that, that helps to provide liquidity when otherwise there might not be. Because if the market was really thin and the price is very volatile, that's when traders really are like, oh, yeah, now I can come in. So there's this natural, um, natural balancing act, and they, they help to even out the, uh, the uh, availability of buyers and sellers um, for everybody else. Where did the TA guys come into this, the technical <laughs> analysis guys who sit yeah, alongside the traders, who, who almost entice the traders in almost? This is the, the beauty of Bitcoin. Yeah, technical analysis. So um, on its face, technical analysis uh, ought to be BS. It ought to be completely stupid um, because uh, the prices of things are the marginal buyer and seller's uh, willingness to make a trade like that. That's what the price is. It's, uh, you know, so many things fall apart when you try to look at them too closely and price is one of those things, you know, people like to say the price of Bitcoin is X, but what they really probably mean is that the mid market price between the, the sell, the, uh, the sell side and the buy side, the ask and the, uh, the bid is 
whatever the price is, right? But there may have been none that actually traded at whatever the price is because that's just a, it's just an average, but um, yeah, I'm sorry. Yet again, I've gotten away from the original point. TA guys. <laughs> what? The TA guys, the technical Oh yeah, analysis. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay, on its face, TA should be completely meaningless. I have to specify that. However, the reason why it's not completely meaningless is because everybody looks at it. So it ends up taking on this kind of psychological mm -hmm. element that otherwise it wouldn't. The other piece that I'll say is because people do all of this TA, there ends up being rules of thumb. So if you watch people talk about trading, they'll say, well, here's where you want to put your stop loss. You want to set this line on your chart so that if the price goes below this, you get out of your trade. Or if the price goes above this, you get out of your short or whatever it is. Right. So people have these rules of thumb for where to draw these horizontal lines on the chart. Because people have these rules of thumb about where to draw horizontal lines on the chart, you know that people are drawing those lines so that then when price goes beyond one of those lines that everybody's using, people get cast, uh, they get liquidate, liquidated. So let me, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So when people trade on margin, what that means is that they've borrowed money in order to make a bet than they could naturally. If your bet goes against you, the exchange that loaned you the money might call your margin. They might say, you need to post more collateral or we're going to have to close your account. So what can happen is everybody's using the same heuristics based on TA to draw these lines on the chart to say, this is where I want to get out of my trade. Then if you're a whale, you can come in and you can what's called stop hunt. You're hunting for people's stops. And you say, well, if I push the price down below this hypothetical line, if it happens to be a slow trading day, I know that I can trigger a liquidation cascade of people who have been betting long. Then all of those people, when their margin gets called, if they can't meet the margin requirements, their account has to be sold. So they're already, they're already trying to go long, but now they have to sell to cover their to cover their uh, losses. So you end up getting a bunch of people who get uh, liquidated, which triggers more liquidations. You get these like uh, liquidation cascades. So anyway, TA. Uh, <laughs> TA should not be a thing, but because people believe it is, it ends up being a thing. And that, that would be my, my saying. I still say don't trade because you can still be right and fail um, just by, you know, um, making a gain in fiat terms and not Bitcoin terms or the other way around. And then price goes against you and you had, you know, outstanding debts and blah, 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 blah. Just better to, safest thing to do is to just uh, buy and huddle. ECA baby. <laughs> just buy as consistently as you can, when you can, and however you can, and just lock it away in one of those hardware wallets that we were talking about before. The, uh, the next group of people, uh, actually, uh, yeah, merchants. Yep. So um, merchants are people who accept Bitcoin as payment. Um, hopefully, they accept it and, and just hold on to it or use Bitcoin. But oftentimes, they're just, uh, they might just accept it as, um, as a payment platform. Um, when this book was written, uh, this was before uh, El Salvador made uh, made Bitcoin legal tender and a um, a currency, you know, in in general. But yeah, merchants are important because um, eventually hotter hodlers will want to spend their Bitcoin, and 
merchants are important um, for making that possible. Intergroup dynamics. This is how you you round out this this chapter. So this is all of the guys that we've just spoken about all coming together and and creating this new marketplace, basically. Yep, that's a that's a great uh, a great point. Thank you for reminding me of that. So this is where I say a lot of a lot of things I already hinted at, which is that um, these different groups rely on each other. So miners who have debts denominated in fiat terms and pay their electricity bills in fiat terms need a liquid market for selling their Bitcoin. Um, that's where the traders uh, come in. Hodlers create value uh, by, by desiring Bitcoin and providing the ultimate um, backstop for, for, for buying those things. And then, like I said, merchants provide venues for, um, for um, hodlers to spend. Uh, and so they're all kind of like this network of people that together um, keep the system going. Perfect, mate. And this is uh, this is where we're headed. A whole new economy, um, which is very, very exciting. And I want to throw a question at you from uh, from my wife, actually, because before we, we came on, I, I said to her, what's your what you know, your, your biggest um, misconception or question about Bitcoin? And she said, well, you know, I, I think it's a dangerous thing to move to a cashless society, uh, which is what is being very much pushed at the moment with CBDCs or going, you know, everything. A lot of millennials these days or Zoomers are going to just play, pay on Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever. You go out with younger guys, this is what they're using to interact every day and everything can be tracked. Said, uh, well, if we go to a Bitcoin standard and everybody's using Bitcoin, then is that not a cashless society? So how would you kind of answer that concern? Yeah. So I here, herein we abut the definition of cash. Like what does cash mean? Um, cash to a lot of people means like physical paper notes. I don't think that that really helps because, um, what we need is money that is transmissible and paper is not. So uh, gold was defeated by paper. You know, Paper was more transmissible than gold because you could write checks and mail them around. Um, and that was tied to people's identity and their relationships to banks. Um, but gold, because gold was not transmissible, paper won. So now we have something that's even more transmissible than paper. Bitcoin is more transmissible than, pa more transmissible than paper. You can sign and broadcast a transaction in Bitcoin from anywhere on earth paying anyone else. So to me, cash requires transmissibility to be useful. And that's where Satoshi Nakamoto's, um, that, that's why the definition, that's why the, um, that's why the paper was titled, uh, you know, peer to peer electronic cash system, because it's designed to make these transmissible cash payments, meaning final settlement at the time of transmission. So I would, I would say that a Bitcoin future is not cashless if your definition of cash allows for a digital representation of value, uh, so long as that representation of value is transmissible and final. That, that, to me, that, that, those are the characteristics of cash. The characteristics of cash are it's transmissible and final and unitized because it's a money, right? If it's not unitized and it's transmissible and final, it's like, well, you can send a radio broadcast, you know, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. So 
I would say that a Bitcoin future is not a cashless society. A Bitcoin future is definitely a cash-based society if you're willing to let go of the physicality of you know cash paper money. Nice answer. All right. Well, I'll round it out with the last question. If you were, if you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? I'm glad you asked me this question because um, I know you were going to. You always ask everybody, and that's actually why I, <laughs> why I wanted to be on the show. So my answer to that question is I would give it to Tony Robbins, right? Tony Robbins, um, in the wake of the global financial crisis, wrote a book um, called Money Master Money. of the Game. Yes. Yep. So here's a guy who gets it. He gets it. There was a the problem and he mm -hmm. did the best he could under the circumstances. He went and met uh, Ray Dalio and a bunch of these other people. It was subsequent to Tony Robbins involvement that Ray Dalio burst onto the public scene. Ray Dalio was obviously already rich and important in the financial sphere, but he didn't become a household name until Tony Robbins dug him up and was trying to get him to describe how regular people could benefit from the system. We talked earlier about the dematerialization of everything and how people invest in stuff. Anyway, so Tony Robbins got through to Dalio. Dalio explained his all-weather fund, blah, blah, blah. So Tony Robbins gets it. He has a huge audience. He's a, a persuasion master. He's like a master of persuasion. If Tony Robbins could understand that Bitcoin is the way that we fix all of this other garbage, he could bootstrap that message and get it out to way more people than I could ever reach. So Tony Robbins would be my number one. Number two would probably be Oprah. She has a similar reach and ability to persuade. Yeah, great answer. Spetsky called Robbins out as well. Oh, it's, nice. Yeah, it's um, and for 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 the same reasons, you know the and that book, that book for me was very influential. It um, in myself taking a much closer look at what I thought had been. The thing to do right uh my, my whole career i'd been like yeah put me in some mutual funds yeah put me in this uh you know diversify my my portfolio get me in these these um gold funds get me in these silver funds whatever um didn't realize i was just paying just absolutely ridiculous amount of fees didn't realize i was going to get trapped into these things and now i feel just conned really conned and i look back at a, a young man 25 to 30 that was doing all the right things you know um and it's just really really bad and then reading robin's book after the global financial crisis and that book that he wrote came from the right place like you know i had to figure out why this happened why so many people lost their homes why so many people got completely screwed over come on tony you got to see this. Yeah. His heart is definitely, in my opinion, in the right place. I mean, nobody ever really knows what's going on in somebody's head. But to me, it sounds like he really cares. The fact that he wrote the book, the fact that he went and talked to all the people that knew what to say. And just like you, I reevaluated my default position of just, just dump it into mutual funds and um, you know, changed up my, my approach. You mentioned diversification. Diversification is the answer to bad currency. Right. If the money is bad, if the money does not hold value, then you have to put it in something else. Well, everything else is valued against everything else again. So what do you do? It's like, well, I don't want to gamble on anything in particular. I really just want to save my value. So you diversify in order to smooth out your returns. 
right? Diversification is the natural consequence of money that sucks, right? So now we have good money. There's no reason to diversify. Like you don't add, you know, shit coins to your portfolio in order to achieve some sort of diversification. Backtesting that strategy will yield insights uh, that it is not profitable. So we have good money now. There's no reason to diversify. Tony Robbins, get on board. Uh, you can do this. If you look at the incentive structure as well, diversification, you're incentivized. The, the, the guy that's selling you this shit is incentivized to diversify you because he's going to make commission on every time that you diversify in or out of something. It's that the whole thing's so broken that, yeah. yeah it's intermediated, Bit yeah. Bitcoin's already won. Uh, it's just that a few of us have already, we're already here and it's a pretty lonely spot. Uh, that's... I call that the Bitcoiners curse. It's uh, to live in the future and wait for everyone else to catch up. Mm -hmm. It's certainly been, um, yeah, a rough handful of years for sure. But because we have, you know, the bright orange future, uh, we, we can build. Uh, you, you've done some amazing work, clearly, with uh, with Sparrow and and whatever else that you've put together. Your your writing, um, your playing cards. I, I hope to see those for sale somewhere. I'd love to be able to push those out for you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, 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 what I need to do is just, uh, I need to get some art for like a card back because right now it's just got my, uh, my little like juggle man logo. All right. I'll, that, I'll that's what you need. Yeah. A, a, a big <laughs> shout out to the plebs. If, um, if anybody can help with some artwork for, for Jimbo's card deck, he's, he's all his DMs are open, I'm sure. Yes. Where can people find you, mate? Uh, yep. My handle on Twitter and Telegram is JimboCoin, J I M B O C O I N. And uh, Jimbo by Con Jimbo the Consensualist uh, is my full Twitter name. Love it. Well, mate, thank you so much for coming on, giving up the time. I know we went uh, pretty long on this. There's probably another one in there. Well, there has to be. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, take care. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again, Jimbo, for coming on and your incredible book, Orange Coin Good. I'm telling you guys, you've got to go and check it out and connect with Jimbo if you haven't already. If you've listened to that, you'll be able to understand what I'm talking about. He's got a great mind, especially when it's coming to creating the things that he's created, like this this deck of card game to, to figure out your your own private seat. It's, it's amazing. It's awesome. And if you can help him out, uh, reach out to him. If you've got the skills to create some kind of artwork for the product or you've got the skills to market the product and help him get the word out there please do you know what to do this is the community this is the time let's help each other build and let's get as many people on board into bitcoin as soon as we can especially as this this nonsense of the last two years just keeps unfolding at a rapid pace and you can that you can see now especially what's going on in Canada and it's been going on in other countries as well obviously Australia and New Zealand have been hard hit with this and Austria um, this tyranny there's no other word for it don't understate what's happening guys really please and don't let the normies in your life understate what's happening either you got to help them understand that this, this is just so basic you know like Freedom is not a political stance. It's, it, this is where we've got to. It's unbelievable. Um, 
Go do it. Go orange pill some people. You know what to do. Thank you if you are streaming sats via Fountain app or Breeze Wallet. Really appreciate you doing that. And please make sure you check out the show sponsors. You know where to find all the links. They are in the show notes. The companies that are going to help you stack sats in the US are swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Across Europe, you can hit up relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten. Download these apps and start stacking away. If you want a exchange experience and exchange experience, coincorner.com. They, um, this is a heavily focused Bitcoin exchange on Lightning, which is really starting to, to take off now. I've had Danny on the show two or three times. If you go back and listen to my most recent episode with him, he talks us through the, uh, the acquisition, for want of a better word, of the CoinFloor exchange in the UK. So these guys are going places and they've got more news coming down the line as well. Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Make sure you get one from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. You have to take control of your coins. Please understand this is so important. Do not leave this to chance anymore. If you use the code bitten at checkout, you will get a 5% discount. And don't forget, if you want to get across to the conference, please make sure you can travel and you can get 10% off all your tickets if you use the code bitten at checkout or hit the link in the show notes thank you as always for listening really appreciate it catch you on the next show guys take care